childbirth, it's anxiety provoking because a woman hasn't had the experience before. And I think doulas are great because doulas are there to explain to them that these are natural feelings, that this is what, you know, what they're going through. And I think the doula has an excellent role in being, you know, a great advocate and a support person to the mom. Hola, hello, bienvenido, and welcome to the Clear Birth Podcast. In today's episode, we will be speaking with Dr. Lisa McLeod, an OBGYN. Lisa's a very good friend, and I think you will love hearing her perspective on birth. A little warning, we are all working from home, and her son, Akili, makes an appearance, and you can hear him a little in the background. Dr. Lisa McLeod practices in New York. She has been an OB for over six years. She shares her practical approach to birth and her birth story and how she managed the news of her son being breached. Welcome, Lisa. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. Oh, of course. Um, So we're just going to go right into like the first segment of the show where I just ask you a few questions so that the audience can get to know you a little bit better. So what career did you want to do when you were in grade school, high school, and college? Oh, okay. So, excuse me. When I was in grade school, I actually wanted to be a ballerina. Oh. I wanted to be a ballerina. And um, as I was moving up in my training, I didn't see any reflections of me. And besides that, I was growing exceedingly tall. Mm-hmm. And everywhere I went, they were like, yeah, prima ballerinas are not six feet tall. So, yeah, no, that's not going to work. So it was it actually was the first time I think I've had my bubble bursted. Uh huh. So yeah, that was the first time that I think, you know, my the, the disappointment of what you can and can't do came mm-hmm. came through for me. Um, so, yeah, so I wanted to be a prima ballerina. And then after that, I wanted to be a teacher. In high school, I said, okay, I want to be a teacher. And um, somehow I ended up going to undergrad and becoming an engineer. <laughs> <laughs> That's a completely different turn. How did you find your way? Like, what what jobs did you do during that time that led you to say, okay, I want to be an engineer? So my dad and his family, everyone are, is uh, big engineers. Like, I come from a really big engineering family. Mm-hmm. Um so like we've all really good in science and math. So the idea was just to follow what everyone else was doing. So mm-hmm. I was like, okay, so clearly I'm not picking the right choices from the prima ballerina and the teacher. I don't know. I just got turned off by it eventually. And um, I said, I'll, I'll go be an engineer. So I went to undergrad and majored in engineering, industrial I- engineering. Oh, and then what changed from there that brought you into OBGYN? So as an industrial engineer, I used to work in One World Trade Center for the Port Authority. And they started having layoffs. And um, they would do this like a uh, re- uh, Like they would do this thing where they would like, you know, start I can't, I don't even know how to explain it. What was the word? I can't, I can't think of the word now. Oh my God. <laughs> no Wait, worries. no, don't do that. Help this out with me. They, um, revamping. Oh, okay. So what, um, happened to the Port Authority is they started doing all this revamping and, um, 
I was like, you know, well, what happens when I've worked somewhere for so many years and then one day they're going to revamp and like I've been working at said job for 10 years. How am I going to go find a new job at like, you know, 35 years old? Like I'm already was thinking that that was old. And I was like, who's going to hire me? Where am I going to go? So I was like that whole idea that you can't go somewhere or keep a career potentially in one place that you might be, you know, outsourced or, you know, your position downgraded or something like that, that kind of started scaring me. Mm -hmm. So I was talking to my dad about what did he think I should do next? Cause he was the catalyst behind me becoming an engineer. And, um, he was like, you know, what do you like? And I said, I liked physical medicine. Like I, I was like, I liked physical, um, physical sports that I liked, you know, like physical therapy. I wanted to do something like physical therapy. Okay. And my dad was like, well, why be a therapist when you can be the doctor? And I was like, cause I actually don't want to be the doctor. I want to be a therapist. <laughs> <laughs> so then what made you take the leap into saying, okay, OBGYN is definitely where I want to go. So it was first to get into med school. It was just first making that decision to go to med school. Yeah. Um, was again, because my father was like, yeah, don't be the therapist when you can be the doctor. So I was like, okay. So that got me into medical, you know, choosing medical school. And once I got into medical school and I started looking around at the different fields, I was like, you know, I've always had some questions about women's health myself. And I felt like as um, an educated young woman, you know, I'd had, you know, a higher education. And I just felt like whenever I went to the doctor's office, no one ever listened to me. I felt like mm -hmm. my needs weren't being addressed that no one was hearing me. And I was like, but I'm well-spoken. So I don't understand where's the disconnects. So I was like, you know what? I want to do something where I can actually help other women. Like I liked the idea behind that. Cause I was like, I know where I've been and I know that what I've gone through. So I was like, you know what? I think this right here would be the way to go. Like taking care of women and going into women's health. And then I can ask the things that I've always wanted to know. And I can educate people just like I'm sure, you know, they have questions just like I did. So. So what advice do you wish that you received before you became an OB? Uh, that, um, the advice that I wish I had received was just that malpractice and the issues around malpractice are scary as hell. Yes. And um, that it can actually be really discouraging and disheartening. And um, that to weigh that significantly in my choice of going into a career, because I'm not so sure I would have picked the same thing now. Okay. What about the, in, the, the malpractice that made you rethink, would have made you rethink going into this career? So I had always thought like I could, you know, become an OB and like open my own practice and hang my own shields up. But the malpractice yeah. insurances alone are like, you know, $200,000. And that's, and that's, you know, here in New York without making your first dollar in terms yes. of the business. As, so the idea that I could eventually go and hang up my own shingle no. was out the window it, once you realized mm -hmm. the cost of just covering your malpractice insurance first would mean that your practice is mostly you'd have the, the amount of clients you'd have to take in would be right. exorbitant to meet just yes. that 
just to meet just the malpractice, Malpractice. not even overhead, not even, you know, paying myself a dollar, just just the malpractice insurance. Mm -hmm. And so that's a lot to take on. And then that would be a lot of time for my family as well. So that means that's why most doctors are in multi-practice, multi-doctor practices. Yes. Mm -hmm. In New York, especially. Yes. So that leads into the, your Instagram, which is Vagina (laughs) Talks. You mentioned earlier that you had some, some questions that you wanted answered when you were going into that. So what, what made you then decide to do an Instagram based on just talking about vaginas and what questions were those that you wanted answered and that you're answering? And so it's funny enough. So I came up with vagina talks MD and I was like, I wanted something that spoke to just being down to earth, but yet it's down to earth coming from the perspective of a physician. Yes. Um, because you know, there are so many sites out there that I just wanted it to be known that, you know, yeah, like I, physicians can be down to earth too. The OBGYNs can be down to earth. And the things that I wanted to address were questions like, you know, what's this discharge I have every month? Why does it change? Like, why is it wetting my underwear? That's what I wanted to know. Like, I, uh-huh. I was just like, you know, wait, what is this? Like yeah. every month, like I'm like, is something wrong with me? Yeah. Like, and it took me a really long time to just like get over it. Mm-hmm. And no, like, I, I would be embarrassed to ask or then, you know, it stains your underwear. And I was like, you know, is something wrong with me? So just from having my own questions and making the Instagram page, I wanted to address everyday things that people come in and ask me that may seem a little bit uncomfortable to them or things that you just didn't know, or you didn't know that you didn't know. Yeah. So I I like, you know, just taking things to the people. Like, what are people talking about? Like, Mm -hmm. I like to address things that people are talking about. So what's the most, what are the two most common questions that women ask about their vaginas? Vaginal discharge is the main one. Do I have a yeast infection, bacterial infection? Uh, That by far is is the biggest question. Everyone wants to know what can they do to clean themselves? Ad nauseum. I get so many questions from yoni eggs and from uh, these clean out balls to summer's eve to ad nauseum questions about vaginal discharge and vaginal maintenance. I'll call it that maintenance, vaginal maintenance. So what do you advise? Well, first, um, I speak from the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, want me to go real evidence-based, has found no need to use any of these products. Anything that is sold in the store for women and pH balance and all of those things is very unnecessary. So save your money. You don't need Summer's Eve. You don't need Magisil or Vagisil and all of these other things. It's, It's very unnecessary. Dettol. Limesol, all of these things that people use to freshen up or clean themselves are, are very unnecessary because it actually does do more harm than good. Yeah. So what other fun fact about, I have my own little fun fact about vaginas, but I want to hear like your fun fact about vaginas. Like what, 
that you share well, on, on, yeah. Oh, okay. So, oh, that we're all shaped differently. Like, that's the thing that I think everyone thinks that they, some people I get come in and they don't know their anatomy. Mm-hmm. So they're not sure where parts are. Mm-hmm. Like I actually had somebody ask me straight up where their clitoris was. And I was like, okay, let me get an assistant first because before <laughs> I go pointing to somebody. Yes. <laughs> um, so I think I have a picture up of um, vaginas and different types yeah. because I do get asked that a lot. And then people are asking me things on the side about their lips, the outer lips, inner lips. So My fun fact would be that we're all shaped really differently and there isn't one look to a vagina because then you've got from the perspective of men that, you know, what's a pretty vagina or how do you define a vagina? So I like to to tell women to go take a look at their own because we all look very different. Okay. And where do you think that concept comes from of a pretty vagina? Oh, that's a great question. I have no idea because I mean, balls aren't that attractive. We don't go around talking about how <laughs> balls are. Like, I don't. I don't that's know. true. That is so true. Yeah. You know, I, you know, like, I got to add one more thing about these balls. Now. <laughs> we got all of these products. Okay, there are all these products yes. for women's use. For women, you, is there a product to clean your balls? That's what I want to know. Yep. That's, okay. And they, they it, do barely it, use that. Yes. <laughs> But we got to have all of these things that are marketed to women, but they're not doing the same thing to men. No, they shake it off, if that, and the end. Okay, so, yeah. <laughs> That's a good perspective to, to, for, for women who think that they need to buy, because we are being marketed to. Like, everything, all of the products are marketed towards us. And that is just a good selling point to say, oh, and you also need one for your PhD, or you also, I mean, yeah. PhD, PH yeah, balance. Mm-hmm. Um, and you also need one for, you know, just overall freshening up throughout the day. It the, sends the constant signal that if it smells that it's not okay, but the same signal doesn't apply when it comes to men and products for them. Exactly. No. Yeah. Mm-mm. Yeah. Yeah. I like one of my fun facts that I like about vaginas. I, I remember, um, the first time I was in a hospital and they were talking about big babies and the nurse was like, Oh my God, someone just had a 10 pound baby vaginally. And I said, well, isn't that glorious that your body can open up and accommodate a 10 pound baby as opposed to us constantly thinking that, Oh my gosh, that's horrible. Like the vagina gets shred to pieces. If it, if you deliver a 10 pound baby instead right. of the other right. mind thought of like, yeah. it expands to deliver right. this baby and then goes back. So yes, that's the only snapback. Snap yes. And that, and that, that was snapback. also because of pelvic floor health and all the other areas of, of having a child, not just for pictures. Yeah. 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 <laughs> What about when your patients are, when they come to you prenatally, what are they worried about when it comes to delivering? Pain. Pain. Um, I have a lot of women who are just really 
preoccupied with the thought of the pain or how painful is it going to be? I get so many questions about pain or their pain tolerance, um, their views on epidurals or not having an epidural IV medication. Um, but just the whole idea of, um, the pain of it yes. or sec it's it, that's tied with the idea of the, the anxiety of it. So a lot of women come in and they're just really anxious about when exactly is the baby going to come and how will they know? Yes. So that causes a lot of anxiety, just a lot of um, uncertainty because you, you don't know. And I think that so many women are, are used to being in control of their lives and being yes. in control of certain things. So you want to know when something's going to happen, you know, what's it going to look like when it happens. And the one thing about childbirth is it's not predictable. You don't know when it's going to happen and you don't mm -hmm. know what it's going to look like. Actually, it's just the baby's going to come. Yes. So what is your what is your overall philosophy around birth? What do you what do you counsel them? Baby, get that baby out the best way that you can. If you got to lay backwards, lay on your side, stand up, sit on the toilet, whatever is going to make you, your hips and your body comfortable to me is, is the best way to have the baby. And I don't think that enough people are encouraged to move. Like I believe in movement with childbirth. Yes. Like you look traditionally at dances and things that women did. A lot of these things were to move the hips, to shift things dynamically because it, by moving and dancing and moving your hips and belly dancing and, and even hula dancing, all of these things with these gyrations in the hips are to get the baby to become, you know, to, to get the baby into the pelvis better. So mm -hmm. you would do these things or learn how to do movements to get your baby out because we're also all shaped differently. So I think if you look at dances and women, um, dances that would be done just amongst women. So now I'm going back way back to the motherland type things or people talk about, you know, the origins of belly dancing, which did come from, you know, Africa, um, that the movement is is very important. So I like to tell women that, you know, childbirth is something that they should get into their bodies and feeling how their body wants to move and going with the flow of that movement. To me, that is one of the most important things because that's what's going to get the baby out. That's what's going to get the baby delivered. That's great advice. And what about, when do you counsel them? What do you say to them about coming to the hospital? Like when should they come to the hospital? Well, we have a standard um, set of things that we follow in our practice. Mm -hmm. One of the main things is following contraction patterns. Okay. Um, the contraction pattern I do the most for women who have not had any children before is contractions every four minutes or um, four minutes apart or less for two mm -hmm. hours. That's the time to come in, actually call first so we can triage yes. you to see if you've really been recording it because people think it's been every two minutes or so, and it hasn't necessarily been so. So I like to have um, women call and um, I ask them about their contraction pattern, if their water is broken, if they're feeling the baby move, because it's important to make sure that you continuously feel the baby yes. move. Yes, yes. And so when they come, so 411 or 421, this is what you're saying, four minutes mm -hmm. apart, that pattern for at least two hours for at least two hours. Yes. And at least that long. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
Yeah. And then you're saying, too, that when they come into the hospital, that they can use movement and continue to use the same movement that they've had in their homes. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. That's that's encouraging to hear because a lot of people think that they go into the hospital and have to just stay on the bed because they're not told that they can move. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And what about. Yeah. Yeah. And working with doulas, how is your philosophy around working with doulas? I think doulas are great. The, the whole thing of childbirth is like I was saying earlier, it's anxiety provoking because a woman hasn't had the experience before. She doesn't know, you know, what to expect. And I think doulas are great because doulas are there to, you know, to be great support systems for the women to explain to them that these are natural feelings, that this is what, you know, what they're going through. And I think the doula has an excellent role in being, you know, a great advocate and a support person to the mom. And that's really great to hear because a lot of um, clients, I know a lot of my clients, I have to verbally say that we are working as a team. This is not us against the doctors. This is like we work together um, and we can advocate in ways that aren't controversial or confrontational. Like it's, it can be a conversation. Um, it doesn't have to feel like it's us against them. That's great to hear that that's part of your, part of your practice. And we also talked a little bit, well, I brought this question up for us to think about a little bit. It's like, what can we do to shift or what can you do in your practice that helps shift the needle of the maternal mortality rate? especially for for women of color? Now, that is an interesting question. To shift the mortality rate, I think the main thing is that no one understands. Sorry. That's okay. My little one is coming to roll, but I I forgot. I have these on. You guys can't hear him. Wait. To shift the mortality rate, um, I think the first thing is that when people of color, when women of color come into the hospital, if they're in pain or they talk anything about pain, the big thing is that if we're not listening to them and there have been studies upon study that shows a disproportionate way that women are approached in terms of their pain or what they're speaking of, Mm -hmm. then we, we are potentially not addressing the problems that they're having. So like we don't look. What, what I'm referring to is that when a woman comes in, let's say, and she's having chest pain, this is like postpartum cardiomyopathy. Women are having heart attacks. Women are coming in and they're having preeclampsia and they're dying from these things. This is where our mortality rate comes in. But, you know, the way we express it, way we, meaning women of color, express pain and stuff, a lot of times is not taken as a, a value. Like the... the I'm losing my train of thought in it. No worries. Just take a minute. <laughs> Akili, can you please go with that thing behind me? I'm sorry, y'all. No worries. Okay. Can I start again with this yes. mentality? Thing? Yes. Okay. Let's start all over again. Okay. 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 So to answer the question of maternal mortality, especially for women of color. I think that we know that there's a disproportionate way that women are addressed. Um, 
when they're evaluated by physicians. We already know that pain has been one thing that's been studied a lot in terms of how um, people of color are treated when they come into the hospital complaining of pain. Mm -hmm. So if we have these biases is what I'm trying to say. If we have these biases already about people of color surrounding what it is, their presenting symptoms um, or the way we look at them, if we've got these skewed views in order to address maternal mortality, it's it's going to be difficult until we start addressing how we view people of color and their complaints. Like you can't affect change and maternal mortality if you, everyone isn't being treated the same. The reason we have these disparities is because the basic premise of just triaging or evaluating the patient is not the same in women of color and white women. It's not the same. So, and until we address these biases that physicians have, that health providers have towards women, that you're not going to be able to address the issue. That's why the women are dying because their needs aren't being met. They're not being listened to. Like I keep going back to the point of saying that, you know, I went into medicine because I felt a need to have my voice be heard. And I wanted to be a voice for the voiceless or for the women who feel like they can't communicate or that no one is listening to them. And I think that the reason there's this, this disproportionate uh, mortality rate is because it just goes down to, we're not taking them seriously. We're not taking women of color seriously when they present to the hospital or when they're describing their chief complaints. We have to go back to bias first. So if we're going back to bias, then that means that doctors need to be retrained and then and then in that retraining what are the next steps that a company can take to kind of a, a hospital can take to make sure that these biases aren't there once you've had these trainings like I often feel that yes I understand that we need to be retrained because there's biases in the room and as a doula we see a lot of it um, mm-hmm. but I also feel that there are a, a bunch of women doing this work who are, um, I, I don't have their names at the moment, but that are doing bias trainings for hospitals. Um, but then the next step of making sure that these, these aren't biases and making sure that there's a policy in place, I, I find that's where it's kind of lacking because you can have the conversation and teach doctors in the room about bias but mm-hmm. there's not a real conversation of, of how it presents. I often feel that doulas should be in the room when they're doing these trainings as well to say, you might not think this is biased, but let me explain this, this and why it would be so they can see their biases. So are you saying that once these policies are in place, then maybe there's some kind of accountability of like uh, outreach to patients to see how they feel about their care. And then there's like real activism to change it within the system. I'm sorry. My son no, is trying okay. to join the conversation. I see him. I feel I, it. Please. Join? No, you cannot join. Okay. Say hi. Okay. Hi. hi Achille. Okay. You can go now. Please. <laughs> so once these trainings are done, um, I forgot what you asked because he keeps distracting. Like, no, no worries. Um, 
once the trainings are done, like how is there going to be how the accountability? accountability? Like, like what else should be in place besides just the trainings to hold people accountable? That part I don't have an answer to. I don't know how to do the account, the accountability portion of it. Um, I think that right now we've just seen over and over that people just don't get it. Like, like look at what's happening right now with the black lives matter movement is that people were just not getting it. And it's like, no matter how many times it's been said and said and said until you start giving examples and you bombard people with just, you know, information like, look, this is how you're doing it. This is how it occurs. This is what it looks like. Like you may think you're innocently thinking this, but these are the examples how, like I've even, I can't think of an example right now, but I've even talked to some of my own friends and have been like, you know, well, this is where your bias is, or this is where it comes into play. And this is what it looks like. Because until you start giving examples, I don't think people really see, like you can say it, but you need to give concrete examples of how, yeah, of how that's great. So, yeah, I think it's definitely needs that the concrete examples. Excuse me, one second. Yes. yes. Uh, why did we didn't bring apple juice? Achille, I can't talk to you right now, okay, about you or the apple juice. Can I, I finish talking? Apple juice. Achille, you can't right now. I'm sorry. I'm on a call, baby. Please. She's <laughs> <laughs> so sweet. Yeah. <laughs> I miss seeing Achille. <laughs> um, <laughs> But yeah, no. So that was, that was, thank you for that. It's true. Real accountability and also examples of how these biases are will mm-hmm. then begin uh-huh. to change the needle. I definitely hear that. So this yes. next segment that we're going into, okay. I like to call daily inspiration. Um, and I've added this new question to it. Just, just think, don't, don't spend too much time thinking about it. Just like whatever okay. the first thing comes to your mind, like what's your favorite scent? Uh, good girl. Good girl. The perfume. It's a fragrance. Yes. It's, it's a, a fragrance. Yep. It's a fragrance. That's okay. my favorite scent. It's okay. a perfume. Okay. Not like lavender, eucalyptus, and no. No, whatever. Whatever it is. Good girl. Uh, <laughs> what book, film, show, or podcast that is inspiring you right now? Um, I actually just picked up an old book um, that I had read years ago. It's called Invisible Man by Ralph Ellison. And it's actually my favorite book. Yeah, um, I, I love the book. So yeah, I've just actually picked that up. Okay, great. And what quote that you think of daily or that just inspires you in moments like these? I actually don't have a quote that I say I go to on a regular basis. There are a few, you know, or mantra, a few things that come up, that come up, but I don't have one. I, I can't say that I, I have one that on I use regular. regularly. Okay. Okay. And now this next segment is where I like to ask about your birth story. Like I know your birth story, um, but I would love for you to share your whole process of your birth story with us. Okay. So my birth story is interesting. Um, you know, being an OBGYN and being pregnant at, um, 40, 43, or 44, um, and having my first child, uh, that in and of itself was like 
a miracle, it seems. Everyone wanted to ask me if I had IVF or IUI or if, you know, some kind of assistance. And it was like, yeah, no, I just had sex and I got pregnant. Like, <laughs> it was just real regular old, old fashioned. Yeah. And um, so, fr- so from the beginning, it was an interesting journey. And um, then I had noticed early on that he was breech. Um, from about the 20th week scan and you, you, you could do scans at my job. You know, I would look at him all the time. You're not supposed to, but yeah, of course I did. I, of course I want to go to hear him all the time or look at him. So, um, as time kept going on, he stayed breech, you know, with his butt down. And, um, I knew that vaginally there are few doctors who do breech deliveries. Yes. Um, so I was like, okay, I have some choices here. Do I turn, do I do the external version where someone puts their hands and moves him manually or do I try something else? And I felt like because he had been breached for so long that, um, I was scared to have someone put hands on and move him. Mm -hmm. And I had, um, a few miscarriages prior to him. So I was just scared to do anything to him. Yeah. So for me, I was like, if you can do something to me that would make him turn around, I'm down for that. Cause I was all about having a vaginal delivery. There's no way I'm going to do the C-section. No way. So I was like going to acupuncture. Listen, I went to Chinatown, Koreatown. I went to see the chiropractor. I spent almost, I can't tell you how many thousands I spent trying to get this kid to turn around. Then I found that at St. Luke's Roosevelt, there's a, a, a doctor. They said there who will do a breach delivery, but she's a $10,000 retainer. Yes. Yes. She does not take insurance. No, she's not there anymore, but she, yeah, she was, Mm -hmm. she's not there now, but yeah. Oh, and they were like, and she doesn't guarantee it. And I was like, wait, I got to give her 10 grand and she can't guarantee this. Yes. I don't know about that. So, um, so I, I stuck to Chinatown, Koreatown, the car. And what were you doing in, in Chinatown and Koreatown? Like, um, acupuncture, acu- yeah. acupressure, moxibustion. One of my doula friends yes. would come over and do moxibustion with me. Um, another friend was doing acupuncture. Um, I was the doing Webster everything. technique, I, everything. The chiropractors have this thing yes. that they do. So I was like, I'll come to you too. Whoever is going to get this baby to, to turn only by manipulating me. You can do yes. things to me, not yes. him. You can't touch him. Me, fine. Nothing works. So I had to have a C-section. And let me tell you, I was 45 minutes late to my C-section because I still <laughs> was trying to turn. Listen, I was yeah. like giving him up to the last minute. My doctor was standing in the hallway looking for me. Like he was like, I can't believe you. And I was like, listen, I I couldn't get it in my head that I had to have a C-section. And I tried so hard. Like I tried and tried. Mm-hmm. Try oh, drinking teas. Oh my gosh. When I tell you I did it all. So when people ask me, oh, the exercises, I can tell you exercises from being on all fours to hanging over the bed, put the peas on, yes. put the hot thing on you. I was, when I say I tried it all, yes. the co- oh, the acute, yes, oh, I did it all. I had no problems on it all. In fact, I took two weeks off of work, so I stopped working yes. to do more things. Nope. Nothing. Yeah. And then Nothing. You, the day of his birth, you go in, you have the C-section. I have the C-section. 
it was great. I was at Greenwich Hospital in Connecticut, mm-hmm. wonderful hospital. Um, the nurses were great. They treat you really well. Um, I didn't feel like I got all the support that I needed. Breastfeeding, though, yeah. it just... Listen, I'm going to tell you. So I don't know if... <laughs> breastfeeding was something that I just never really got before. And I thought you just give the baby like the areola, like the little part. Yes, the nipple, little nipple. nipple <laughs> not the whole areola. So I'm like trying to give this baby just a nipple, not the areola, because I thought that's what breastfeeding was. But, All of this time, I did not know because they don't teach us breastfeeding in med school. They just say encourage your patients to do it. But I don't know what doing it actually is. Mm-hmm. So after he chewed up my nipples... <laughs> <laughs> poor mama poor mama and after he chewed up my nipples I learned like oh no it's the whole thing. thing so then I had to have all my doula friends come over and assist me with everything I had you come over and assist me with holding how to put the baby yeah. how to yeah. how to how to lay with him put the breast in his mouth get him to nurse get you I mean, to lay down and relax yes because yes. like, it's tense mm-hmm. it's like a it's, and it, and it's awkward for me to be in a position of not knowing, you know, what I'm doing yeah. and just feeling so helpless, just feeling like you want to do so much, but ah, it's, it's, it's like you want to do everything right and you want to do yeah. everything in bed and exactly. it, it just, it just ain't like that. It's just not, you do what it do. Yes. But you eventually got it. I eventually got it. Yeah. I eventually got it. Yeah. Oh, that's oh, wonderful. Wait, I got to plug in my phone this time. Okay. <sighs> yeah, I'm at 5%. Cheap. So, well, we're almost at the end. I thought we were going to make it before I had to try to plug this thing in. But nope. No worries. <sighs> yeah. I think got it. Wait, wait, wait. I'm just going to just stay. That's going to be the trick. Okay, that's me. Okay, the phone is crooked. No, but you look straight on the, okay, on the video. Yeah. Good. Okay. So, you, we went on to talk about breastfeeding, great, and you said you did it. And what was the experience of having a C-section as an OB like for you? Like, what did you change? What would you change for your patients after having had a C-section? Oh, oh. the first thing is I don't talk as much to the person assisting me because mm-hmm. that annoyed me when I was being cut open and they're having a conversation over my abdomen, over my open guts, that was annoying. And, and, you know, you hear them going back and forth and I was like, okay, I do the same thing. I was like, I can't, I can't leave here doing that because I was like, you know, you got someone scared, you know, Mm -hmm. underneath your hands and all they hear is you talking about, you know, what you watched on TV last night or whatever. So yeah, no, I was like, that can't happen. Then the things that I learned, like, uh, I'm a big fan of Fajas. Let me tell you. Yes. The first Girdles, thing I was. Binders. Yes. The, I tell all my patients, like, you don't understand. You got to put on a girdle, 
because that girdle is nothing. It's not cosmetic. And I tell all my patients, it's not cosmetics. I'm not telling you to do this, you know, to have, you know, this great bod or whatever have you. The girdle is essential because the girdle provides support when you're laughing, coughing, sneezing, because you feel like your thought is that your guts and stuff are going to come out or you're going to rip a stitch. You're not. But it's the thought like it feels that way and you get scared like you're scared to breathe, to have your lungs expand because it hurts and the coughing of the sneezing hurts. But the girdle provides so much support that it's it's a it's a necessary product. And I say they don't all fit the same on you. All the binders and things are not going to work for you at all points. Like find what works for you now. And then four weeks later, you might change up because right now when you leave the hospital, you can't put on the panty one. You you can't get your legs in those things. But eventually you may want to put that on. But I think the the girdle is the best thing because it gives support. And I think it takes away some of the edge. And I have my patients come back one after one and tell me, oh, my God, the thing makes a difference. Yes, it makes a big difference. difference. Well, that's great. That is great. So where can people find you? What is your Instagram handle? My Instagram handle is vagina underscore talks underscore MD. Vagina talks MD. MD. Vagina underscore talks MD. Uh, Underscore MD. Underscore MD. So it's underscore twice. Yes. 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 Thank you so much, Lisa, for being on my podcast. It was great having you. Thank you. I really appreciate you sharing your stories and your perspectives. I can't wait to for everyone to hear this episode. Thank you. You're welcome. Right. Bye. All right. Bye. Gracias. Thanks for listening to the Clear Birth Podcast. Please don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. You can find me on Instagram at the Clear Birth Podcast. If you want to send me an email, you can reach me at theclearbirthpodcast at gmail.com. Adios. Hasta luego. Goodbye. Until next time.